that really took orphans seriously. But many of you know that in 1999, Sandy and I lived in Haiti. And uh, that was a life-transforming experience during that sabbatical for all sorts of reasons. Um, perhaps the best outcome of it was that it so touched the, li the life of one of our daughters that um, because of that experience, she committed herself to a ministry with the poor, which continues to, to this very day. But I remember I was working with 60 lay people in a big church in uh, Cap Haitien. And uh, we were doing community engagement and creating some strategies to get the church engaged in the community in a variety of initiatives. It was absolutely fabulous. But there was a group of, of women uh, that I met that wanted to start a microenterprise. And I thought, well, that's a noble thing to do. But I met with them one day, and they said, Glenn, we want to start this, but we don't have, they didn't use this language, but what they were saying was, we don't have enough capital to buy the sewing machines so that we can get this going. I mean, we were talking about $2,000. And um, uh, now the easiest thing to do is for me to take out my checkbook, transfer money from Canada to Cape Haitian, and just give them $2,000. I mean, that's, that's called charity, but that's not addressing justice and oppression. And so, um, so I got th this think thinking about this, and there was no bank that would even let them in. So I thought, okay, there's two ways to skin a cat on this one. Because there's a, um, the, the Caisse Populaire um, has a bank branch in Cape Haitian. And I thought, okay, I got an idea. I will go with these women to the Caisse Populaire. I will sign for them based on the fact that I'm a member of a Caisse in Montreal. And they would be able to, to get their loan. And then I would help them to construct their business to pay back their loan. So it was about empowering them. And uh, so I went into the bank branch, met the bank manager, had a great conversation, told him what I wanted to do. He went into his computer and he looked me up, you know, the, the emperor has no clothes. And, um, and he looked at me and he said, yes, um, Dr. Smith, we can see that you're a very fine and outstanding member of the Kess in Shamadi, and uh, we'll make an exception for you in this case. Um, we will only charge these women 45% interest. Needless to say, I was not happy. Um, so we found another way to do this, and we were able to get the money, and we were able to get a loan at 2%, uh, which made a whole lot. That's when I learned about systemic evil. Uh, that journey continued here in Montreal, and as many of you know, for uh, 15 years, Sandy was actively involved in community engagement in Hochelaga. And I'll never forget um, some of the discoveries that she and I started to make together uh, in 2007, walking the streets and interacting with people and learning about the neighborhood and learning that in the city of Montreal in 2007, there are neighborhoods in Hochelega Mezidov that are what are called food deserts. I mean, we're not talking about the Sahara Desert here. We're talking about on the island of Montreal. Now, there's a very specific definition to a food desert, but this part of Hochelaga met that. And that's what got Sandy actively involved in urban agriculture. And she got in on the front end of that, which is now a thriving industry all across Quebec. But this was with helping kids to address the oppression 
of what has happened as that neighborhood has been built. And I start off with those two stories this morning to take us into a text where we want to look at a man who had the courage to stand for what is right but against oppression. Now, there's a particular context to this text which will make the so what a little bit more complicated, but we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. I want to do three things this morning. First of all, let's get the big scope of what justice is in the Hebrew Bible and in the Christian scriptures. Then let's jump into the text in Nehemiah chapter 5. If you want to use the Pew Bible, just turn to page 401, and we'll read the text here in just a moment. And then at the end, I want, I want to look at two or three um, applications that I think are appropriate when we think about what this text means for, for us. But before we, we read the text, let's do, first of all, let's just do the big scope. Um, you know, why should the people of God, and particularly Christians, be concerned about justice? Um, in this first, first step, I think it's important to remember what both the, the Hebrew Bible and what the Christian scriptures have to say about the subject um, there's two words that are used in the Hebrew Bible for justice. One of them has to do with what we call primary justice. That is that the human person has inalienable rights. This is what is due to the person. And then the second word is about working to reestablish right relationships. Now, when you come to the Christian scriptures and you look at the word, there is in what we call the DK stem in Greek. And then out of that comes all the other words that have to deal with, with justice, justify, uh, doing justice. Uh, but what's implicit in the, in the stem is the idea of what is indicated, um, what comes to someone, uh, what is done, how do things line up? And you can easily see how the early Christians saw in that whole semantic field of words what was implicit with who God is. So as you read the Bible, read both the Jewish scriptures and the Christian scriptures, it becomes very obvious that God is faithful to his creation and to his covenant. God does what lines up with his person. So it should come as no surprise amongst the 26 names for God in the Hebrew scriptures, one of them is God just. You see, we know who God is by what God has done and what God does. And so when we look at those 700 references to justice in the Old Testament, we see that right from creation, God has value, puts value in the human person. This is the person who is made in his image and in his uh, 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 resemblance. This is what we look like. We reflect, and it's not just a question of dignity. It's a question of value. And so we have inalienable rights because of who God is and how God created us. Now, sin, evil, suffering, and death twisted all of that. But it didn't change fundamentally what God is up to. So we see right with Noah, right after the fall, 
we see that there is a word against murder. Genesis chapter 9. But God stands against murder not because of a law. We're, we're not into law yet in the Hebrew scriptures. No, God is against murder because the individual has inalienable rights because of who that person, he or she is, created in the image of God. God wants to put things right because of how he created us. But God goes even further because we see in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and Genesis 17 and in Genesis 22 that God created a covenant, if you will, a pact, a norm, an alliance. God says, here's what is the line. Here is what are these inalienable rights. And God created that pact with Abraham and therefore with the Jewish people to put things back right. God created the line because he is faithful to what he did. And you see, God then is resolutely committed. That's why we say God is faithful in his justice because he remains faithful to his saving plan, his saving liberation to put everything back to the way he intended. So God being just in his very character, he's not, part, he's not partial, but he has a bent towards those who suffer because their inalienable rights on who they are is not respected. So that's why we get throughout the Jewish scriptures this commitment, this bent of God for widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. Because God sees them as being deprived of the line, the pact of how God is committed to putting creation back in place. And so God in his person in action wants to put things right with individuals, with people groups, with kings, with judges. God wants everything to line up with his intentions since creation and through his covenant. But you can readily see why then God sent Jesus to put everything back in order and to provide for liberating justice for not just individuals, but for all of creation. Now, that's really quickly the big picture. Let's look at one study. Let's look at one person and what this one person does to stand up for justice but against oppression. Let's turn to Nehemiah chapter 5. Let's read the text and then we'll do a hop, skip, and a jump through the text. Nehemiah chapter 5, we're going to read verses 1 to 13. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Um, I just want you to notice there, just do a little parenthesis in the text. Boy, I wish I had been there when that outcry took place because I can be pretty much assured based on just personal experience that the great outcry, it started with the women and they dragged the men along 
because men, women have a huge bent when there is injustice. Anyway, that's not in the text, but that's my read on the text. Now, some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our homes to get grain against families. Still others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on the fields and the vineyards. And although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. When I heard this outcry, and against these charges, so there's actually legal implications going on in this text, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind, and then I accused the nobles and the officials, and I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I called together a large assembly to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have brought, bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of God and avoid the reproach of the Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending to the people money and grain. Let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses, and also the interest that you are charging them. One percent of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more of them. You, we will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and, the, and made the nobles and the officials make an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, In this way may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise, so that you, so may such a person be shaken and emptied. And the whole assembly said, Let it be. And praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. So obviously, we're going to put this one story in that great landscape that I've just gone through. I want you to notice a few things in this text as we, as we take it apart. Um, chapters 3, 4, 5, and 6 of Nehemiah represent, according to the author, 52 days in the life of of these people that have come back out of exile to rebuild the wall in Jerusalem. Now, what's interesting in chapter 3, that's actually the start of building the wall. It, it, it's kind of, it, it, it kind of fits into the same literary genre as a genealogy. Uh, what I like to tell people is that if you're having trouble sleeping at night, um, read Nehemiah 3. That'll, that'll put you to sleep in no time at all. You know, you know, read through the text. But there's a couple of really interesting things in it, in spite of the fact that it's highly repetitious. Um, first of all, you see all of the key people are helping in rebuilding the walls. Uh, and, and actually, in verse 12, it's one of my most favorite verses in the Bible, because it actually has a family, and the guy gets his daughters, father of three daughters, 
grandfather of two granddaughters, they get their daughters involved in helping to rebuild the wall. Um, and, and then um, this takes 52 days to build the whole wall. But what people did is that they built the wall, the text says, in front of their house. I think that's amazing innovation by Nehemiah. Because if I have to build a wall to protect myself, you can be pretty sure that it's going to be a whole lot more solid in front of my house than if I'm just doing it for somebody else. But there's a little indication in chapter 3. In verse 5 it says, but the nobles didn't get involved in building the wall. Keep that in mind. Now in chapter 4, there's opposition from the outside. And Nehemiah has to deal with that outside opposition. And how does he fundamentally deal with it? He deals with it in confrontation and in prayer. Twelve times in the book of Nehemiah, he stops to pray. Two of those prayers are long, chapter 1 and chapter 9. The other ten are just one-sentence prayers. It helps us to catch the spirituality of this man. Now we come to chapter 5. And the word jumps off the page right in verse 1. There's an outcry. It gets repeated again in verse 6. Now, these are people, but the wives who come and make the plea. They make the plea. And Nehemiah hears it. And he convenes a great assembly. I, I remember when all of the news first broke at the turn of the 21st century about the residential schools, I participated in a great assembly of the indigenous nations of Quebec that met with church leaders to deal with the outcry of what had happened to indigenous boys and girls in Quebec. I must admit, I had no idea what was to come, but to participate in a great assembly to hear the outcry was deeply moving. It marked my soul for life. Now, what happens? These people with the wives, they come with four complaints. Maybe we should say three complaints that has two sides to it. First of all, in verse 2, we need grain. Now today, we would say, these people are suffering, they have no food security, and they have no food autonomy. You see, because what had happened for 52 days, they'd left their fields, probably before that they'd been ripped off, and now they were caught. We need food. Verse 3, they'd mortgaged their land, their vineyard, their olive trees, and so now they're pleading because of economic disparities in the community. Verse 4, we're being overtaxed. And so now we see that there is structural inequalities. And then in verse 5, they talk about their children. 
and they've had to sell their children into slavery to other Jews. And so the words in the Hebrew text even imply that there is sexual oppression going on. And so now we see that there's human trafficking going on. Lack of food security and lack of food autonomy, economic disparities, structural inequalities, human trafficking, particularly of children. Sound familiar? The preacher in Ecclesiastes would say, there's nothing new under the sun. So when we get to verse 6, what does Nehemiah, as the governor, do? It says, first of all, he got angry. Now, as I was dealing with this text this week, I was also leading a Bible study with, with six young uh, uh, pastors that I, that, I read, that I lead. And we were dealing in Ephesians 4. And we had this really long conversation. It was a great conversation about when Paul says, uh, be angry, but do not sin. Now, um, most of us probably grew up in households where, uh, you know, don't get angry because it'll always lead to sin. So we had a conversation about that. But uh, this strikes me as one of those passages where Nehemiah was so outraged by those four oppressive forces that he was able to put his foot down and we don't get the idea that he sinned. Because what does the text say right after that? I thought it over. And I would like to suggest to you that as you see or participate in fighting oppression and inequalities and you pursue God's justice, yes, get angry. Don't sin. And the best way to get angry and don't sin is to take a deep breath and think it over. In other words, think and pray before you act. That's what I see Nehemiah doing in this passage. So when he meets with these nobles, and I want to suggest to you that these are the very people that are ripping their fellow Jews off and aren't being willing to get in the dirty work of building the wall. And so now is the day of reckoning. And so what does Nehemiah do? He reviews the situation. But what's of interest to me is that what seems to have really got to Nehemiah was the human trafficking, the slavery. And that should get to him because that's where the image and likeness of God in those boys and girls was at risk. Their inalienable rights as children was being compromised. And on that one, he blew a fuse. And so he challenges them on that. You see, slavery is not just an economic issue. Slavery is not just a political issue. Slavery is a human issue because we're created with inalienable rights based on the fact that we were created in the image and likeness of God. And Nehemiah, he goes right to the point. So as we continue in the text, when we get to verse 9, now he makes the charge. 
And the words that are here give us the very notion that this is a legal proceeding. He is taking these nobles into the public court of opinion. And what does he say? <laughs> what are you doing? Like, get a life. And then he says, we have to stop charging interest. Now, he, the, the verse 10 is, is a really interesting verse to me because it's almost as if this was a wake-up call for Nehemiah. It's as almost as if it's his mea culpa. He says, you know, I've, I've been loaning grain to people. Um, now, it doesn't say that he was charging interest, so we don't know. Let's not make the text say things that it doesn't say. But he's willing to put him side. He's willing to put himself on the side of oppression. So now he's identifying with these people and their wives. But it's all these charges. Notice where they're rooted. Verse 9. We have to walk in the reverence of God. What Nehemiah is saying is here is that the fundamental problem is not the lack of food security and food, auto uh, food autonomy. The fundamental problem is not the human trafficking. The fundamental problem is not the economic disparities. It's not even the structural injustice. The fundamental problem is God's character is at risk. We're not reverencing God. And because of that fundamental problem, we're no longer a light to the nations. And what do you hear here? You hear Genesis 12. You hear Genesis 15. You hear Genesis 17. You hear Genesis 22. Because God chose Abraham to establish the Israelite nation, to put things back in place, as God said, to be a light to the nations. And by compromising the reverence of God, by committing this fundamental sin, this fundamental evil, they were no longer keeping with their vocation. And Nehemiah gets angry. But he does something. Look what happens in verse 11 and 12. He actually moves, first of all, not just to restitution. He doesn't just move to, okay, let's give them some grain. Let's not take interest anymore. Okay, send the boys and the girls back home. That would have been restitution. That's not justice. What does Nehemiah, he says, I want you to do indemnity. I want you to pay them back. And that's why I find it interesting. In the complaint of the people in verse 3, they talk about how they gave up their land, they gave up their vegetation, but now Nehemiah says, give them back also their olive trees. The olive trees in Israel was how they made their living. And they've been deprived of that. And I want you to give back 1%. Now, there's, there's some questions as to how this word gets translated from Hebrew uh, into, into modern languages. But the real sense is here is that Nehemiah wants these nobles to move beyond simple pity. He wants to indemnitize them. 
He wants them to get more. Let me come to an application about that in just a moment. But then in verse 13, we come to this wonderful jest. Um, this is what, uh, Cindy and I were talking about this this morning over breakfast. This is actually what we would probably call an enacted parable. Because Nehemiah takes on, uh, he, he, he's actually playing a theater play here. And he takes his Jewish robe with all of his pockets and he empties his pockets to say, I have nothing that I'm hiding. And he's saying, I want you to do the same thing. Today, what we do today is, is we say this, um, you know, I, I, got, I got nothing in my pockets. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm an open book. And he does this in front of the priests who are almost the jury, and this is where the accountability comes in. And how does the text end? Let it be so. Because now there's public confession, there's public accountability, and actions are undertaken. Okay, the landscape view of God and justice. The case study with Nehemiah, with a ton of stuff we can learn. But what does this mean for you and me today? Um, three things. Um, this text deals with injustice and oppression in the community of faith. So we dare not leave this text by saying, oh, this is what happens in the world. No, let's start by looking in the mirror. This is what 1 Peter chapter 4 reminds us. Judgment begins with the house of God. And so if we're going to deal with being courageous people in the face of, in the face of justice and against oppression, how does it affect us? I, I would like to suggest here, that this is where we as followers of Jesus need to take um, what is going on with our indigenous brothers and sisters, and particularly the victims of the residential school system, very, very seriously. Because the church was complicit with the government in what took place with those 150,000 children that were educated in those substandard schools, both architecturally and educationally. Now, it might be easy for us that aren't either Roman Catholic, Anglican, Presbyterian, United Church, or that one Baptist church in Yukon, and say, well, we didn't do it. But, my friends, we, we, we were complicit. You know, we, we used the same provisions in the Tax Act to get income tax receipts for our charitable giving that was used for those churches to finance those schools. So we participated in a structural evil. And it was Christians that were involved in it. It's fine and dandy for us to be proud and haughty and say, oh, look what those Christians did in Rwanda. Yeah, it was a tragedy. It was horrible. I was there right after the Holocaust. After the Holocaust. It was despicable. But my friends, we cannot be haughty on this one. We all have complicity. Even if we never did anything up until the final report of the Truth and Reconciliation Committee came out. But the bottom line is, Christians were involved in structural evil. And we have to face up to it. When the news came out about the school in Kamloops earlier this year, I, I 
picked up my copy of the final report. I, I reopened my Kindle and, and I, and I reread the final report. I was so grieved. I mean, the final report had said that it didn't talk about these graves, but it did speculate that anywhere between five and 30,000 children died in those schools and were buried around those schools, uh, un unnamed graves. And now the truth is coming out. But what struck me this time when I read through the report, it, it, didn't, uh, it hadn't jumped off the page at me in the past like it did this time, but so much of those residential schools as done by the church was part of their philosophy of mission. This is how they were doing mission. And that goes to the heart of a missiologist, to think that we do mission in the name of colonization rather than in the name of Jesus is startling. And that's where we need to listen to Nehemiah. What's going on? This must stop. Now, to move from inside, and although this text doesn't deal with, with oppression outside of the community of faith, we, we, can, we can make the, the bridge. And uh, let me just pick up on those four points that those people bring to Nehemiah. Food security, economic disparities, structural inequalities, and human trafficking. And like I said, nothing new under the sun. We see this all the time. But because this goes to what God wants in creating the line, in creating the pact, in putting things right, how he wanted from creation, but brought together in Jesus. This is where I think Christians can get involved. I think it's important for us, you know, we can't do everything. But just because we can't do everything doesn't mean we can't do something. And I'd like to suggest today, you know, pick one of those issues. If you want to be courageous, and, and pursue justice. You know, pick one of those issues. All of them are alive and well right here in our city. Walk with the oppressed. Listen. And then join in actions with others. We don't need to start something new. We can join with others that are combating this oppression. I have one of my, one of my graduate students right now. She's working with my, my youngest daughter, Krista, downtown. Um, they're dealing with um, the, the repositioning of the oil, old Royal Victoria Hospital, the old Vic, um, because there's a real move on, as you can imagine. Welcome to Montreal. Uh, let's just take the old Vic and let's make it a condo, as if Montreal needs another condo. Um, and so Krista's involved in working with the community downtown to make sure that as McGill used parts of that site for research, great initiative for Montreal, uh, another part of it perhaps um, for uh, immigrants, asylum seekers like they've been done, but let's make sure part of it is used for the common good downtown. And uh, they've made presentations before the National Assembly, they've made presentations before the city because they're saying Christians understand that there are some ways that land can be used for the common good. But for Krista and my grad student Sylvie, it's about God's justice in the city. And I'd like to suggest that there's a ton of issues like that right now in our city. And of course, we must pray. One of my favorite theologians from the 20th century put it this way. To put your hands together in prayer is the first step against the chaos in the world.
So all these other things I'm saying, you know, understand the issues, walk with the oppressed, join in actions with others. I'm not saying prayer is the last thing you do. No, prayer is the first thing you do. Because God knows there's a lot of chaos out there. Last thought. I think we have a problem with this issue because of, okay, I've talked about the Hebrew scriptures, about the Greek scriptures, um, because of the English Bible. We don't have this problem in the French Bible. You see, for whatever reasons, going back to the first translations of the biblical text into English, we decided that we, we would make a distinction, two Hebrew words, pretty distinguishable, one Greek stem with all of it. We've decided that we're going to use righteousness and justice in the text. And if you want to confuse people, just give a variety of translations. So, for example, um, Matthew. Tamar, who was the daughter-in-law of uh, Judah, as you remember in Genesis 38, uh, she prostitutes herself uh, to Judah to get her rights as a widow. And what does Judah say about Tamar? She was more just than me. Now, my goodness, she wasn't pious. But she did what was right to get her rights, inalienable rights, as a widow. Think about Joseph, Jesus' father. He wanted to put his wife away discreetly. Okay, good guy. The angel appears, and what does it say? Joseph was just. Because he did what was right for Mary. The Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Okay, the English Bible. For righteousness. So we end up interpreting that as personal spirituality. Which, you know, is fine. But then you come to verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. Now, I don't know about you. I know people who get laughed at for righteousness. I know people who get scorned because they're pious. But I've never met anybody who's been persecuted for inner spirituality. But I've met a ton of people who have been persecuted because they went after justice. And so I would like to suggest that as you read your English Bible, every time you see the word righteousness, think, no, this is about justice. Because that's what it's about. Because it's rooted in who God is. So the bottom line on this one, if we're going to be courageous and stand up for justice against oppression, it means it's not just about personal spirituality. It's not just about your private relationship with Jesus. It's about public action to continue to partner with God to make things right. Because God is faithful to the covenant to creation in Jesus. And so when it's all said and done, he gets all the credit. Let's pray together. <clears throat> oh, Lord, this morning we can't uh, finish this subject in this wonderful series 
by just thinking about Nehemiah. We need to think about the injustices in our city. And whether they be questions of food security and autonomy, whether they be about economic inequalities, structural injustice, human trafficking, this horrible violence against adolescents in the north part of the city. Lord, all of these things, we know they concern you because you are just. We pray that you would so animate us by your spirit that we would be able to embark in those initiatives and be courageous to do what is right because it's who you are. We pray this because we want you to get all the credit in your name. Amen. Have a wonderful afternoon.